Good morning again, everybody. This morning, um, our topic is our struggle with sin. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to start with some confession. Um, This morning, I accidentally put on the wrong socks. So I've got Megan's socks on this morning. I hope that doesn't bother anybody too much. It really bothers me, though. Um, So... This morning is, is Romans chapter 7, and it's, it's one of these chapters, everybody talks about some chapter being, you know, their favorite in the Bible. This honestly is not one of my favorite chapters. Um, it's okay to have a not favorite chapter of the Bible. Um, this, this, this section, especially the, 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 the middle of Romans 7, is, is actually uh, a little confusing. Um, he, he talks, Paul is writing and talking about um, his struggle with sin and the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, the stuff he doesn't do, he wants to do, and uh, it, it gets, honestly, a little confusing. Um, but we're going to try to work our way through that this morning, and, and we're going to be dealing with uh, a very, um, hopefully, very helpful topic uh, for the life of a believer. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 7, that we're going to be reading from verse 21 through uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and if you would, please uh, stand as we turn there and, and read from this. Father God, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word for us this morning, or that it would be clear that you would speak through it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, this is Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 1. So I, tried, I, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. So last week, uh, Randy kind of gave us the bad news about sin, and this morning we're going to continue and look at one of these uh, great questions of the Christian life. How can I be united with Christ and yet still live in sin? See, in, in Romans 7, Paul spends quite a bit of time uh, teaching and talking about the relationship between the law and sin. And the law he, dis- he discusses, um, the, we, we can identify this as, as God's law. This would not necessarily be the Ten Commandments, but they would include that. You know, Jesus sums up the law and says that the whole law consists of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with loving your neighbor as yourself. So that sums up all the law and the prophets. Now, John Calvin talks about the law, and he notes that Scripture uses the law in three ways. So he goes over these three uses of the law. And the first use of the law is that the law serves as a mirror to to us. It, It exposes our sin. So the law points out what we should do, and it highlights the discrepancy between what we should do and what we actually do. 
Now, Romans 7, 7 says that yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law acts as a, as a mirror for us. And the second use of the law that, that Calvin talks about is the civil law. So this, this is um, kind of the using God's law as sort of law of the land, uh, sort of to restrain the wicked. Uh, in a way, things aren't quite as bad as they could be. Um, if we have complete lawlessness, things would be much worse. Um, you know, we could see the Ten Commandments at work in our civil law, do not steal, do not murder, etc., etc. So the law, in a sense, is a deterrent. And, and the third use of the law is to reveal that which is pleasing to God. So that as, for Christians, it shows us how we should live our lives. How can I please God? Now, this is, it's different than simply exposing our sin, um, but it is encouraging on us onto righteousness. And so here in Romans 7, Paul is struggling with this first use of the law. The law is a mirror. And he also uses the word law in a couple other ways. In in verse 21 that we read here, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now this isn't God's law that he's talking about, but this is something sort of similar to like Murphy's Law. And and you, you probably all think everybody is familiar with Murphy's Law. I did a little research on that this week. Um, Murphy's Law is actually this. If there are two or more ways to do something, and one of those ways can result in a catastrophe, then someone will do it. Okay, that's Murphy's Law. Murphy was working with the Air Force, and there were 16 sensors that must be placed on an aircraft for one of the tests that they were doing, and his assistant placed all 16 of them in the wrong direction. It could, be, it could have been one of two ways he did them all wrong. So he came up with the, and he said this, if that guy has any way to make a mistake, he will. Um, there's some other laws I like. This is uh, Finangle's law is actually, if anything can go wrong, will, and at the worst possible moment. Um, and then my favorite uh, is probably Hanlon's razor, which is never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. I think Carlton taught me that one. Um, So he says here, uh, so Paul is describing the experience here of the Christian life. And he describes it in such a way that we could all relate to it. I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, it's so good, it's so easy to do evil. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I can have the best intentions, the best motivations, the purest desires. But man, it's still so easy to fall into sin. Sin is always crouching at the door. It's always a click away. It's always ready to pounce when my mind is wandering and when my flesh is weak, when my focus begins to wane. And remember, this isn't just some slacker giving us this. This is the Apostle Paul. It's it's not just some excuse about why he's not growing in his faith, but this is one of the most mature believers that there has ever been. So here's the paradox of the Christian life. I delight in the law of God... But in my inner being, in my inner being, but I also see in my members there's another law working. It's waging war against my mind. So there's a law outside of the law of God and outside of Paul's uh, Murphy's law, and this is what we call the law of sin. It's the, the law of sin is that the natural condition of man and our of our own human nature. Augustine describes the nature of fallen man as, as this that we are unable to not sin. 
that man in his fallen state is unable to not sin. That's who I really am apart from God. Apart from God, the law of sin has such a total and complete influence over my life that I'm not even able to not sin. I have no option except to be a slave to sin. And, and even for those who have been united with Christ, there is still a struggle with the law of sin. In our minds, in our hearts, they might have been regenerated, but in our bodies, the law of sin still dwells. It's because of the flesh, or they, they use this word in the Greek called the sarks. And it's more than simply the skin on our bones, but it's the, it's the nature of our fallen humanity that is still a part of us. Um, Augustine describes a Christian as able both to sin and able not to sin. Okay, so that as believers, we are able to choose between these two, but we are not unable to sin. We are just able to choose both. So the believer lives in a paradox, alive in the spirit, but dead in the flesh. And so knowing this, here's a few things that we must remember. Okay, the first one is that the struggle is real. Now, we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 12, and in that verse, Paul wrote, or the author of Hebrews wrote, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You know, followers of Jesus aren't simply to throw their hands up and say, Well, there's no hope for me anyway, so I shouldn't even try. You know, simply because we can't achieve perfection does not give us a way out. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for that. You know, right, right now at my house, we've got like four uh, seasons going on. Okay, four seasons. One, it is a baby season, if you have not known. You know, we go in tomorrow to be induced. Well, not we. I'm just that guy standing there. But, you know, Megan is going to be induced. And pretty soon, I'm just going to be that guy in the house with the wallet or that guy with the car keys. And all the girls will come. And, you know, uh, that's how it's going to be. Uh, so that's uh, it's baby season. Um, two, it's football season. Just because it's Alabama, it's always football season, right? Um, three, it's hockey season. A lot of you guys don't even know what hockey is, but it is hockey playoff season right now. When the Penguins are in, it's hockey season for me. When they lose, I'm done with hockey season. Uh, so right now, game four, tonight, uh, it's on NBC Sports Network. You can go find it. Figure out what hockey is all about. Um, but also, uh, and this, might, this is weirdly my favorite season, it is also baseball season. Now, there are not very many baseball fans left out there. Uh, the game takes way too long. It's really boring to watch on television. Um, there's lots of reasons. But, but in baseball, here's the thing about baseball that I find so fascinating. It's probably the most difficult game to actually play. And you'll see these articles show up every once in a while. I saw something even this week that said, it's like, using physics, it should be physically impossible for a major league batter to hit a major league pitch. With the distance and the speed of the ball, it should be physically impossible, and yet we see that happen. But here's the most interesting thing about baseball, is that failure is expected. The best baseball players of all time still failed far more often than they succeeded. You know, Babe Ruth, his on-base percentage was less than 500. That means that in over half of his at-bats, he never reached first base. And yet, we would call him probably the greatest hitter to ever live. And so, so think about the Christian struggle with sin and the life of a major league baseball player, the life of a hitter. And, and, and in our struggle against sin, we know that perfection cannot be attained, and yet that doesn't excuse us from attempting it. Imagine a, a baseball player going to bat and only trying one out of every four times. The success would be terrible. 
he, he couldn't be anything close to what he needed to be. See, baseball requires dedication and work at your craft. And so for a believer, the bar is also set at perfection. You know, a baseball player, every time he goes up, he's trying to, to get a hit. But he knows it can't work. But for the believer, the bar is set also at, the, at perfection. It's set at the perfection of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is perfect, and we are called to be like him. And we can be like him without being perfect, but we can't be like him without striving for perfect holiness. You know, we can be like Jesus without being perfectly holy, but we can't be like him without striving for perfect holiness. So the author of Hebrews is writing to this group of believers, telling them, in your struggle against sin, you haven't even resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. You can't even really say that you're trying at this point. And on that note, struggling with sin is a clear sign of spiritual activity. Think of it almost as a white blood cell count. If you go to the doctor and go to the hospital and your white blood cell count is up, it's a sign that there's an infection in your body, but it's also a sign that your antibodies are active and doing well. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 says that, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. But these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. See, there's a real danger when we're not struggling with sin at all. And there's only two types of people that don't struggle with sin. Okay, dead people and people who think they've completely conquered sin. Those are the only two types of people that don't struggle with sin. Obviously, both of these groups have issues. As for the dead people, they can be either literally or spiritually dead. If you've not received new life in Christ, you're not unable to not sin, as Augustine would say. Uh, It's the nature of man. We shouldn't be surprised when people who are spiritually dead sin. That is their nature. However, there is a teaching that real believers do not sin at all. You know, and I love Christian bumper stickers, okay? Don't you love Christian bumper stickers? You see them on back of cars. I know, I know. I love them as much as the next guy, but here's some of my favorites. You know, do you follow Jesus this close? Honk if you love Jesus. Text if you want to meet him. Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're a jerk. Uh, And I saw this one recently, and it was on the back of a car, and I've seen it on signs of churches. It says, if you still sin, you're not saved. Has anyone ever seen one of these stickers? If you still sin, you're not saved. You know what I want to do when I see those stickers, right? I want to cut that guy off and see what he does. I want to see whether or not he's, he's really saved. So there's this misguided teaching that has come out of the Wesleyan movement. So uh, John Wesley taught this idea that a Christian can get to the point in their life where they stop sinning completely. It's called the doctrine of sinless perfection. Okay, and, and, and interestingly, he never claimed that he was perfect. He just said it is possible. And we've seen other groups come behind and they take this doctrine and they apply it uh, rather um, unfortunately. And we see the effects of it in, in some of the holiness movement uh, type of churches where they say uh, that to be a true believer, uh, to expect this second blessing of sinless perfection. 
it's, it's rather misguided, and so that's where that phrase comes from. If you still sin, you're not saved. H.A. Uh, Ironside um, grew up in a church like this, and he talks about the disastrous effects of growing up in this movement. This is what he says. He says, thousands are yearly being disheartened and discouraged by their teaching. Hundreds yearly are ensnared into infidelity through the collapse of the vain effort to attain the unattainable. Scores have actually lost their minds and are now inmates of asylums because of the mental grief and anguish resultant upon their bitter disappointment in the search for holiness. We see what happens when we fall into this line of thinking that we should be perfect and anything less is unacceptable. There's some problems with this. One, this is not taught anywhere in Scripture. Our, our own human experience tells us, quite frankly, that this is impossible. Uh, and the expectation of perfection is an impossible burden to bear. And it creates extreme anxiety and despair for those who are being, t- who are being taught it. And sinless perfection takes the focus off of God and places the work of assurance on us as believers. Uh, so if we think we have actually obtained perfection, it's only because we become so arrogant and hard-hearted that we can't even see our own sin anymore. In fact, the more we grow in Christ, the more we are aware of our sin. Last week, Randy shared with us this great quote from J.C. Ryle. He said, Christ is never valued until sin is clearly seen. You know, the more we get to know Christ, the more obvious our own sinful words and actions are to us. Although sometimes we do fall into this trap of thinking that the more mature we become as Christians, uh, the more offended we become at the sin of others. That's, that's not how it works. The more offended we become at the sin in our own lives, that's the mark of spiritual maturity. Although I do want to add here that there is a difference between struggling with sin and flirting with sin. Okay, there is a difference between struggling with sin and flirting with it. You know, here's the age-old youth group question when it comes to dating and relationships, right? You know the question? How far is too far? What can I do and still not be sinning? It's kind of like driving. What's the first thing we want to know when we get in a car? How fast can I really go? You know, I know the speed limit says... 50, but can I go 5 over, 7, 10%, half my age plus 7? You know, we're trying to figure out all these ways. What's the real rule here? And it's, it's very rarely are we looking to see, to follow along with exactly what it is. We're always kind of flirting with this. I remember talking to, and we've got uh, our Mimi in town now, and I remember talking to uh, Megan's mom and dad about the, the street in front of their house. And it's a, it's a one-lane country road out in the county in Ohio. And the, the speed limit is unposted, which means that it is 55 miles per hour. 55. And now, I, I doubt very many of you would like people to go back and forth in front of your house at 55 miles an hour. And so they had, someone had spoken to the police about getting a posted speed limit of less than 55 they so said, maybe we can do 40 or 45. Well, you know what the police said, right? So if we put, here's the problem. If we put 40, people are going to drive 60. 
But as it is, people don't even know what the speed limit is, so they actually drive slower. If we post the speed limit, even though it's lower than what it actually is, people will actually drive faster. Isn't that crazy? That reveals a lot about our, our human nature. I had a person once tell me that one of the clear marks of our spiritual maturity is to, to watch how I drive as a Christian. If you want to examine your own life just to watch how you drive. And then I started thinking you know, about the fruit of the Spirit in my life as I drive. Love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, you know, I don't want to think about that anymore, right? Uh, maybe if you only knew about the other guy, that, that you would understand the way, that, the way that I live. It's so funny. There's a difference between struggling with sin and, and flirting with it. So I think back to this question of, of how far is too far or how much can I get away with and, and then you think about it maybe in a different way. Okay, uh, imagine having this conversation. What you're really saying is how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? Imagine asking your spouse, hey, how much can I flirt with this other person before it started bothering you? Can you imagine that? And regardless of whether or not, if you even go through it, my, pro- my thought process is clearly not, how can I be the best husband or the best wife I can be? It's simply, what are the minimum requirements to stay married to you? And, and imagine asking that question to God. What are the minimum requirements to stay in a relationship with you? Regardless of whether we act on that or not, doesn't that reveal a whole lot about our hearts? Doesn't that show us so much about who we really are? And I doubt that any of us would do that with our spouse, but but we all kind of get into that predicament with God. We're okay with flirting with sin, not realizing to the degree in which just asking the question creates friction and pain in our relationship with God. So we can't use our inability not to sin as an excuse to flirt with sin or to sin more. But the closer we grow to God, the more we desire to be like him, even if perfect holiness is impossible. So this is the ultimate struggle for the believer. We want to please him. We want to be like him, but we can only struggle with it. And we see Paul's struggle here. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And the struggle is real. It's, it's real for Paul. It's very real for us. But there is such great hope found in Scripture. That last verse that we read, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ means that Christians may still experience the consequences of our sin, but we do not experience the condemnation of it. We might experience the consequences of our sin, but we will no longer suffer the condemnation for it. See, the great hope for all believers is that Christ has taken care of the penalty of our sin on the cross. He doesn't bring us in as sons and daughters because we've done so many great things for him or because he's got uh, just this, because we're such great people. But he brings us in because he loves us. And the great thing is that when he saves us, he saves us from all our sins in the past, from all our sin in the present, and from all our sin in the future. Nothing that we can do surprises him. He doesn't bring us into his family, take a look at us, and go, you know what, I decided you're out. Because he knows all of that before we come to him, before he brings us into his family. 
It doesn't mean there's no consequences, but it does mean that there is now no condemnation. Finally, we'll close with uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. So it reads this. It says, Now that I have obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not because I am already perfect, but I press on because Christ made me his own. That's the motivation of a believer. See, the Christian life is a race, but it's not a sprint. You can't win a marathon in the first mile, but you can lose it. Attempting and striving for something that is impossible is just going to burn you out. But thanks be to God, O wretched man that I am. The Lord works in our lives. He gives us the ability to not to to conquer our sin, but to struggle with it. That, That we would fight against it. That we would know that as we do that, that we are loved and we are his. No, he knows you and he loves you. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, around this room, we know that the struggle with sin is real. Lord, we, we agree with Paul saying that, that when we even want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And the good that we want to do, we do not do. But the things that we do not want to do, that is the things that so often we do. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for the grace and forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. For the promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, that we can be united with you as we struggle with this sin. Lord, and we know it's never going to leave us while we're in this body. But Father, we look forward to a day. A day when holiness can be ours. With you in Christ. Lord, open our eyes to our own sin. Uh, Convict us of that as we strive to grow closer to you. Lord, let us not look to the sins of others, but let us examine ourselves, that we might experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in our lives, we pray in his name. Amen.